I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Topcon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Dan Towery has worked to advance conservation ag practices for the past four decades as both an independent consultant and in various roles at the USDA and other conservation organizations. He's played a critical role in the expansion of cover crops across the nation, especially within the no-till ranks. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Dan about his many experiences along the way, including getting traction with ridge-till in Illinois, lessons learned from terminating hairy vetch too early, getting big yields with a dwarf soybean variety, the interconnectedness of plants, fungi, insects, and animals, and much more. So, Dan, let's talk about, did you grow up in Illinois? Whereabouts? Farming background? Well, actually, I grew up from Havana, Illinois, which is on the Illinois River, about midway between uh, Springfield and Peoria. My granddad farmed across the Illinois River in Fulton County, and that's in my youth. I spent summers over there uh, helping out on the farm. My interest in soil, because when he was mowing board plowing, and this was some lowly ground, and I asked him, Grandpa, how come, how come it's dark on top, top of the ridge, but the side slopes are all yellow? And he said, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> just the way it is. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, it didn't take me too long to figure out that there's some erosion issues going on there. But again, at that time, it was I was more interested in picking up uh, arrowheads and that type of thing, the, the soil going down the streams. And I didn't know it then, but was uh, actually somewhat of a foundation, I guess, of my interest in the whole soils and why are they different colors and how, how did that happen? So then you went to... Went to school, and then what happened? Yep. Went to school at Western Illinois University. Worked for Gromark for uh, a year. Then Map Soils up in Henry County, Illinois. Uh, did that for a couple of years. Great experience. Though, the life of a soil scientist, I, I realized that that wasn't where I wanted to be. You know, it was one thing that... When you were talking to the cows, but when you started talking to the trees, I, I, I knew it was that wasn't my thing. I, I needed a little more interaction. Uh, right. And and also at that time, see, it'd been early '80s. Sure. This new thing called no-till was just to start. When I was at school at Western Illinois, we went and visited a farm in Schuyler County, and it was a farmer who had planted no-till corn. And uh, that was my first visit with the no-till farmer, a no-till field. And it was like, this makes a whole lot of sense. Went from there. So got on with, uh, then it was the Soil Conservation Service in Henry County. I did some training there, then went to Douglas County, then Springfield, to Champaign State Office, State Agronomist, and then over to the Conservation Technology Information Center. was there 10 years and then started my own company, Ag Conservation Solutions, when I left that in 2005. 
Tell but, me about your first work with no-till. Well, that was in Henry County, and it was with uh, Alice Chalmers no-till planter. Two-inch wavy colders out front, had barrels that uh, we would fill with water. That was our additional down pressure. And most of the fields, this was uh, a lot of livestock in Henry County, and most of the fields were on very sloping land that had been in alfalfa. Usually after the three years, four years of alfalfa, it was playing out and needed to get a year of corn and then go back to alfalfa. So worked with growers that didn't want to till that, so plant no-till. And uh, I think back now, and how in the world did we get the stands that we did? I mean, compared now with the hydraulic down pressure, you know, it's inconsistent, sitting depth, just all kinds of issues. But I saw it was a learning moment because most of the time we were doing a spring burn down on the alfalfa and occasionally growers would want to take the last spring cutting and then burn it down. Those were usually disasters. And we actually had a couple of folks that applied the burn down on the alfalfa in the fall. And those turned out usually the best yields on the farm. I mean, it beat the, the black ground. As long as we didn't have an issue with uh, armyworm or some types of insect pressure that we had to contend with, but that showed some potential. And that planted a seed. It didn't didn't germinate right then, but it planted the seed. The idea that having a different rotation, how important that is to the system. And this mm-hmm. is what I think was the beginning of learning how it's it's not any one piece, but it's the system. Right. matters. That was a really good experience and then went to Douglas County and Flattest County in Illinois, flat black, still a lot of moldboard plowing occurring. Some of the folks just a plow was new to them and I came in and introduced the whole idea of ridge till. Actually got some pretty good traction and it was more than anything just, hey, you don't have to till so you know to get good yields. But it had some issues. I mean, obviously, the big fields were an issue, just all the management. But it worked fairly well. Then I was uh, promoted and went to Springfield, Illinois, Sangamon County. So then it was, you know, no-till corn was still trying to push it and, and whatnot. And had one grower there that actually, he was intrigued about growing his own nitrogen. And so we did one year with Harry Vetch, and it worked pretty well, but knew absolutely nothing that what we were doing. I mean, this was, <laughs> and, but we, okay, we terminated it too early. So, because we, we terminated it like the last week in April way too early for hairy vetch because most of the nitrogen fixation occurs just at pre-bud, which is typically about the third week in May. So so we learned from that. So the following year, which I believe was 1983, we're going to let that vetch grow till the third week in May. Well, 83 was, uh, it quit raining sometime about the <laughs> second or third week of April. Yeah. And uh, very dry out there, and couldn't get the planter in the ground, and it was like, holy moly, I'm done with cover crops. This is this is too, yeah. Again, didn't 
didn't understand, you know, at all the, the principles involved in management changes that you have to be, have, you know, for varying weather conditions and that type of deal. So, but then no-till soybeans were coming on big. Oh, I remember, I don't know how many busloads that I was involved with going up to Jim Kinsella's. Sure. Uh, and getting get strip-till corn, no-till soybeans, and uh, made great strides. And it was, I, I think about those days when we're, we're talking about some of the drift issues that we have now and how back then it was, um, well, with the cobra and some of the other herbicides, it was uh, how close can we come to killing soybeans without actually killing them? But, mm-hmm. but burnt them back big time and they still would yield very well. One of the things I remember, uh, we did plots, and uh, it was what, the Dixie soybean variety, so uh, dwarf variety, only got 12 inches tall, and mm-hmm. couldn't believe it, because it was uh, 72 bushels we got off of that plot uh, for those beans that weren't more than 12 inches tall. Of course, they had a pod every half inch. I was going to say, it's not uh, tall enough to get the pods on. <laughs> Yeah, so John Deere at that, that point in time introduced the 750 drill, and that was a game changer. Yep. That was, here we had somebody that wasn't uh, an off-brand that put the, the stamp of approval, if you will. Right. If it's green, it must work. It must. It <laughs> must. Of course, then also ran into issues where, you know, we had some of these fields that I worked with growers were getting cost share dollars and, and, uh, and the guys put some no-till and uh, well, he used this John Deere 750 grill to plant the beans but uh-huh. his two tillage trips ahead he said well I, I used the no-till drill I said, <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that because you use the no-till drill that, uh, that those are no-till soybeans so, right so right. a little learning curve uh, with some folks uh, at, at that point in time. Well, when you started out and, you know, your first job, you were talking about um, alfalfa. When we After we started No-Till Farmer in 1972, we did a number of stories in those early years of no-tilling corn in the sod. Um, it worked. Yes. Yeah, kind of. Most of the time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there were some challenges with it. But that's the basics, you know, getting the seed at the, about the right depth. Uh, getting the seed trench closed was an issue. You know, again, early on, I wasn't aware of just how important it was to be cognizant of changing conditions and you need to change your management accordingly. So it was became much more sophisticated, I think, uh, as obviously as the years went on and, and we got more more experience. And you know, those pioneers and those growers that were willing to to try it, things weren't any different now. There was everybody was looking at them and what they were doing and and what are you thinking? You got to work the ground and. That 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 hasn't changed. That's just part of human nature when you do something a little bit different. So, so when you look at residue out there, you look at soybean residue versus corn residue, and you kind of automatically think it would be easier to no-till in the soybean residue. But that hasn't been the case. Nope. And part of it is the, the crop that we're, we're planting, is it corn or is it soybeans? But you think the least amount of residue the easier it is and right. but, but it just it's 
is that you're you're absolutely right. It's the exact opposite, uh, and that's why we, when we came out with the no-till drills, and we saw the big increase in no-till soybeans. Right. And it dwarfed, if you will, the acres of no-till corn, even though that's where all of the early work was done in, in no-till corn. So beans are just so much more forgiving. Uh, you didn't have to have that perfect spacing. Uh, you didn't have to worry about starting fertilizer. No-till beans are much, much simpler uh, from the management. But then in 2005 was when really started looking at cover crops. Mm-hmm. And before that, I, I was pretty well locked in that, you know, continuous no-till, it didn't get any better than that. And uh, when I was here in Indiana and we were working with growers, all of them had been no-till farmers. And they were the first ones who did the early work with cover crops. And and it didn't take long at all to, from a soil standpoint, that we saw that one plus one equals four. It it was the adding the cover crops, adding the no-till, and doing it year after year is where we. It, it almost some of the soils became different soils. Infiltration improved, organic matter increased, uh, moisture holding capacity improved. You know, just night and day difference of what adding cover crops to the no-till and the synergy of, of putting those together. So that was the early days. We called it, you know, first it was just organic matter, then it was soil biology, and then that morphed into the, the current, the, the soil health that we're, we're looking at. But it also made me realize, Frank, that uh, you're looking at this mix and what we were doing and basically how... You know, we've become a little too greedy. Uh, rotations were too tight. You know, even a corn-soybean rotation. And I realize we got to look at the economics and all of that, but, you know, I almost couldn't believe it when the first growers I worked with, that they added wheat, then came in with a warm-season cocktail. And just having something growing under ideal conditions, so growing in late July, August, September, it could really flourish, put out lots of biomass, fix lots of nitrogen, and the changes that that did to that field were just almost like night and day. And we still haven't figured out how often you need that. You know, and again, it's part of, from a total health standpoint, you'd have it every three years. Economically, that that one's a little tough. So is it every five years? Is it every six years? But I'm convinced that you know, getting getting that diversity in there, uh, there's just multiple benefits that's going to come, and they're going to fade away, if you will, the more years that you've been away from it. But so we don't know what the what the magic number there is, but it, I, I would say it's probably somewhere three to six years, uh, sure. ideally. I grew up on a dairy farm 40 miles north of Detroit in Michigan, and in the 50s, my dad was seeding red clover as a cover crop. How did we get away from using cover crops in those days? Well, it's really easy. One, the wheat yields increased, and and folks had issues where the red clover got smothered out, 
And of course, along the same time, we were having less acres of wheat planted. And I mean, it's it's still kind of a throwback here in Indiana. I go up to the northeastern part of the state, and there's still, you know, the soils are such that a lot of growers, corn, soybeans, wheat is part of the rotation because they just they see a yield drop off not having that wheat in the rotation. So. You know, not great soils to begin with, but the red clover, it was at the price of corn went up and the livestock decreased. It was the whole idea of needing it for hay for, to feed the livestock somewhat decreased at that time. And well, and still now, we, we still look at, you know, purchasing the nitrogen is easier, less hassle than flattening the legume to, to fix it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of has changed a, a little bit now, and uh, we're more willing to accept it. But uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, the whole the wheat red clover. Um, I mean, it still is very popular in some areas, but I think it's at that time we didn't realize the the importance of having those rotations, and we weren't taking full advantage of the potential because. Because, again, come back in and, you know, take some hay off of the red clover and then come back in and no-till corn into it. Uh, well, that was that was pretty risky. You know, some did it, but you know, not, not not too many. But now I think we've, we've turned a corner, and uh, I say that. It's, it's uh, you know, percentage-wise, adoption of cover crops is still in the infantile stage. You know, it's probably uh, 9% here in Indiana. Corn belt wise, two to three percent adoption. Right, it's it's amazing because like the CTIC and the survey shows that nationwide or whatever the adoption rate of cover crops is about eight or nine percent, and then when we survey our no tillers, it's about eighty percent. Yes, yes, and that's where you got many benefits that are sometimes you it's hard to put into your accounting schedule. You know, just you know, being able to to get a four inch rain and not have any runoff. Well, if you work the ground and you lose some soil and the water runs off, and as long as you you know you still got some topsoil left, and and you know you, you know, most guys go out there and where the concentrated flow was, you go back up there and work that area up and level it back out and, and continue to farm it. And it's just just a question of. You know, how many how many more years can can one do that? Mm-hmm. Looking forward, there's no question that people, food companies, they're growing interest, I guess, in how how these crops are growing. Right. You know, are they sequestering carbon and putting it into the soil? Obviously, lots of questions on on how it's going to work out. And is it going to they're going to be able to get a premium out of it? And, and, but there's some. You know, things are moving in that direction. You talked about one of your experiences being with Ridge Till. And, yes. early, and early on in the 80s and 90s, there were some no-tillers that kind of bad-mouthed Ridge Till. They didn't think there was much to it. But now you look at Strip Till today, and about half the things the Ridge Tillers were doing is what makes up Strip Till. I mean, you're building berms, you're deep banding, you're controlling traffic. <laughs> yep. And one of the real problems, I think, with ridge till was it didn't fit big operations. It fit smaller, and those two cultivations kind of haunted people. If livestock, because they should be baling hay at the same time, they should have been 
cultivating. Oh, I, absolutely, absolutely, and and that was, I mean, it was. Well, let's just say that the guys who doing the ridge till, if they could be timely with their cultivations, I mean, they weren't spending hardly anything on herbicides. Right. And uh, but you get a wet June and couldn't cultivate, and you know, there's right. there's where the rub came in. And then as, a, as the equipment got bigger, I think that was probably the biggest limitation because then some guys were running duels with a, a spacer to yep. straddle the rows. But if you had long rows, well, you couldn't you couldn't harvest. You couldn't go from one end to the other of the field, and so it became necessary to put a, a grass strip, if you will, uh, you know, just to limit the length of the rows and uh, so that was most of them were using six and eight row. When guys tried to do it with the twelve row was when when we. Because part of the advantages of that was that if you set up right, you got the automatic controlled traffic pattern out there. Right, exactly. But it wasn't easy and, to uh, do either. <laughs> no, no, and especially as the equipment got bigger. Right. Uh, I think they were talking, if I remember right, one hundred and twenty inch spacings was kind of normal but it was hard to get the tractor and the sprayer, sprayer or whatever and the combine on the same path uh yes yes and and especially if you were you know looking at the co-op to help out and, and yeah yeah lots of headaches and trying to keep things working principles were solid and actually we may come back to that as we start looking at automation and driverless tractors and uh It'd be interesting to see where this goes, uh, right? You know, in, in the next twenty, thirty years. That's one thing you, you you know that whatever you're doing today, there's going to be something different coming. Uh, right. Right. Well, it's so. like these little remote automated tractors, not big horsepower, don't do a lot, but they they could run twenty four hours a day. They don't care whether it's light or dark. Yep. Theoretically, at least it was. Yeah. Uh, so so it's it's. Uh, you know, in the early days of those, I was like, nah, that's uh, that's, that's just a pipe dream. But right, it, right. Nope, it's, it's it's happening. What was your feeling about strip till when it came in? Did you think it had a place, or did you think it was you didn't know? Oh, or? no, absolutely. In fact, it was, well, like when we were going, taking farmers up to Kinsoa, I mean, it was strip till corn and no-till soybeans. Was, right. Uh, but we had some guys that had issues with, getting their strips put in as became a little more aware of, yeah, you don't want to start making strips until the soil temperature is at 50 degrees and the temperature is going down. So we had some issues, I think, with some of the folks losing nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And that was before the whole nutrient loss hypoxia was, was on the radar. Again, it can still be managed, but you got to consider that part of the, of the equation. But a lot of the no-tillers, I mean, it was it, – and if you actually step back and look at it, it was – we had guys that went from conventional tillage to, let's say, ridge till, then transition to from the ridge till to strip till, corn, no-till, soybeans, then to continuous no-till. There's a, a lot to be said for – the knowledge gained in that process. Right. Obviously, now you don't need to go through that yourself, but I think it's important to understand that it was where we've been, why changes have occurred, has 
folks look at making decisions of where they're going to go. There's a lot of information that is needed to put together a, a, a good system. It's got to be a systems approach. So you don't, you don't need to go through all those steps, but you really need to understand the principles involved and you don't want to cut corners. It, it will come back and bite you. Yeah. And again, just part of it is the mindset of you can have the best of plans, but you've got to be able to change them almost at the drop of a hat. Weather conditions change, whatever. If you haven't figured out a plan B, C, D, or whatever, that's where frustration can comes in. And I've seen folks that throw their hands up and it's just lack of thinking ahead and not getting, you need to proceed at your comfort level. So psychologically, you have to have to be on solid footing as you adopt to these more sophisticated systems and understand how to, how to cope with different variables that are going to be thrown at you. And it can be something really simple. Voles, for example. I've talked to many a farmer who, back when, the winter months were part of the, I don't know if it was a hobby or whatnot, but shooting coyotes was <laughs> very, very popular. And it's funny to see a person go from only good coyote is a dead coyote to he quit hunting coyotes and and actually strongly encourages his neighbors, uh, you know, don't shoot the coyotes. They're our friends. Yeah. So what <laughs> so, were the coyotes eating? The voles. The voles. Okay, gotcha. So that's been kind of interesting. And we've got a few over here that actually have put up the the purchase for the, the hawks uh-huh. and just just trying to work with nature if you will to keep things keep things in balance we'll rejoin frank and dan in a moment but i want to take time once again to thank our sponsor topcon agriculture for supporting our no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast series From planning to precision machine control to NORAC boom height control monitoring and mapping to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. To find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use, visit topconpositioning.com forward slash grown solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. So as we're coming up to uh, hunting season, and it could be duck hunting season for many no-till farmers around the country, it's interesting to look at how no-till impacts bird numbers. In fact, Ducks Unlimited staffers believe one promising alternative will benefit farmers, wildlife, and wetlands is a widespread adoption of fall-seeded no-till crops, particularly winter wheat. They found that the nest densities and nest success was relatively high in fall-seeded no-till crops compared with spring planting. In a test they did on 2,100 acres of cereal rye and winter wheat, they found a total of 239 duck nests in the fall of 1998. In comparison, there was another 1,950 acres of spring-seeded ground where only six nests were found. So the nesting species on fall seeded crops was 21% pintail, 40% mallard, and 20% northern shoveler, 
with the balance being blue winged teal, gadwall, and lesser scalp. And this was in parts of South Dakota and North Dakota. So the fall seeding definitely helped the nest. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Dan Towery. So these guys that are strip tilling, either now or in the future, do you see them moving the no-till or staying with strip till? Oh, I think it, it's 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 going to be a mixed bag. I mm -hmm. mean, I think some will probably go to no-till, but many of them probably will stay with strip till. Yeah. Um, the the big thing is is recognizing of you know how many acres can you do the thing that I don't know now is we we put in so much more tile. I mean, it was so many farms have come back in and split the middles. You know, if it was on 90, now it's on 45. If it was on 80, now it's on 40 foot spacing. And I think part of it, the secret is, is yeah, you need a, need a tile system. But here lately, guys were looking at getting the farm and they're adding cover crops and you know, said, well, should I go right in and put in 40 foot spacings right away? You can get the soil so that that water can infiltrate and get to the tile, I think that uh, you'd be able to get by fine with a 90-foot spacing. One of the things folks kind of forget sometimes, you know, our tractors, our combines, grain carts have all gotten bigger as the years have gone by. Right. And, and you know, we know that at times they're out there when it's a little on the wet side and you're putting compaction in there. So we know that tracks help, for example, but it's, it's, so you gotta look at all the things that, that are occurring, but if you can get, keep that soil so that a four inch rain and it, no water is standing, no water is running off, then I think it can get to the tile and you're for the most part gonna be okay. Yeah. But we're also looking at probably not putting on more than half of the nitrogen no more of, you know, putting on the, what that crop is going to need. You're putting it on six months before most of that nitrogen is going to be needed by the corn crop. Right. And we just, it's just too risky. We can't afford to, to lose that. And of course it's some more of a guessing game of knowing how much, how much was lost. But, um, so we're going to need due diligence on that. And, uh, or, maybe 20 years away, but I'd hate to see the whole certain watersheds at least that, okay, nitrogen can't, cannot, cannot be applied in the fall. Mm -hmm. You know, like to leave that as an option, but nitrogen stabilizer, to reduce the rate, you know, all, all of the things that we know are, are needed to make sure that we don't have a leaky system. Right. Or, or I should say, we're going to have a leaky system. We want to make it as leak-proof as possible, though. Right. Well, you go back to the you know wet conditions with the big acreages we have. Sometimes you got to start harvest in some wet areas just to hope to get it done during the year. And we got a number oh, yeah. of and we got a number of no-tillers last spring. If they hadn't mudded in their corn, they might never have gotten it planted. Oh, I know. And that's why I said sometimes you got you, you're going to have to do it, but right. it's try to minimize that as much as possible. Right. So. Well, I would think some of these strip tillers who either didn't get their berms built in the fall, which could happen this year with a late harvest, or guys who build their berms in the spring and don't get it done, they're not in a total panic because they know they can still no-till that ground. Absolutely. And some of them may be surprised at how well it works. And mm -hmm. it, right. It, it, it's, uh, 
so again, I think having that flexibility uh, is important. And, uh, you know, cause back in the early days of strip till, it was like if you didn't get your strips on, your nitrogen put down, and you thought you were totally screwed. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you just got to have that plan B, how to proceed. So the other thing that I think is of interest right now, that's uh, just a late change is just, and these are, it's a minority, but the growers that are really managing to try to increase the beneficial insects. So that, that is a, a real positive, I think. And uh, I guess the biggest discouragement that I have, I, I did a lot of work with all of the different soil health tests. And so far, the conclusion is, at least to me, is that a lot of them are interesting, but we haven't got any of them that are what I would call really useful so but that's work in progress and it's it's complicated and one of the things that we've learned i think is how little that we know how the soil functions how the soil biology how the physical as well as the the chemical properties are intertwined and how the the whole idea of plants communicating with each other i know it occurs that have trouble getting my arms around how what can we what can we actually do to influence that all right well we've we've had at least one speaker at the no-till conference a few years ago talk from canada talking about how plants can communicate with each other and you you think it's kind of far out but then it's gonna it's it's gonna make sense one of these days yes no no, they can't communicate, but we don't understand is that zone right around the root hairs, around where the mycorrhizae, fungi, hyphae, that whole communication process. And, you know, it's not going to knock you over. I mean, it can only do so much. I mean, these plants don't have brains, they're just mm-hmm. they're, but, but they are reacting to biochemical stimulation and um yeah, that, that, I'm, I'm confident we're going to be learning more and more about that, but it's uh, extremely complex. Right. You mentioned beneficial insects. How do you how the growers build these numbers? Well, first of all, is you quit using neonic seed treatment. Okay. That's got to be the number one, both for the bees as well as a, a lot of the ground beetles. I mean, the, the poster child, I guess, is leave the neonics off. You have the ground beetles, you have no slugs. Mm-hmm. That's the connection. Now, I don't want to say wholesale that you can just skip the neonics entirely, but we've part of like what we've learned from, again, and this is just some of the more advanced growers that I've worked with. You have corn that is a warm season grass, and we're going to plant it under marginal conditions where it may stay at around 50 degrees maybe a little bit below, maybe a little bit above for three weeks, four weeks. So basically it's just sitting there, not growing at all, versus waiting and planting a little bit later when the soil temperature is more like 55, 56 degrees, and it comes, boom, out of the soil, growing rapidly. I mean, we haven't paid enough attention, I guess, to what we are doing to the beneficials and and how they can become part of our pest control management. You know, I've been doing a lot of work for the past four years on interseeding covers at 
that uh, well, actually now it's V V three to V five. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through the that period where we were told any green plant when that corn plant is at V five, if there's other plants out there, then that's going to cause you a yield reduction. Sure. And we know now that totally untrue. Uh, it was the extent of if you've got weeds out there at V5 and they're going to continue to grow and it's going to cause the, the yield reduction, but it's not any green plant out there. So it's, it's there's some some principles, I, I, I guess, that, you know, we've been been taught that just aren't aren't exactly true. I mean, a simple thing is like our soil test, six and two thirds inches. Well, that was based on the depth of moldboard plowing. Right. You're mixing the soil. Does that mean there aren't any nutrients below that depth? No. And I think that we can say now that there's a lot to do with nutrient availability. You know, you, when it, when a corn plant only explores one to two percent of the soil. And, you know, if we can add the covers, get the mycorrhizae fungi, hygiene, we can move that to about 20 percent of the soil. And it's that's not, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's the same as where does a fence post rot off? And it's, you know, it's looking at, you don't want it too wet, you don't want it too dry. You look at the temperature, it's, it's, can you improve the zone of biological activity? Right. And if you can improve that, then that is a game changer as far as getting, pulling nutrients out of the soil. And, you know, it's just, we've got the old school where everything was based on tilled systems and, and the rules of thumb just don't exactly jive. Right. If we, if we change the base of what we're, we're working with. So it's, I think it's, don't know exactly, it's going to vary on the clay content of the soil, but it's probably closer to 12 inch at least. Right. Uh, instead of just, just seven inches or so. So don't laugh at me, but you're talking about interseeding cover crops. What if a guy who didn't intercede cover crops let some of his weeds grow? <laughs> Is there any benefit to that, having something green there, even if it's a weed? Well, <laughs> it could be, but the problem is if you, you got the, the weeds that are c- going to continue to grow, and with the interseeding is we're right dug, dug with the interseeding, and we found the roots went didn't go any deeper than what the top growth was. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if it turns dry, if you're getting, you know, like some of our broad leaves that, that would be up there six, seven feet tall, they got a massive root system down there. They're taking water, nutrients that uh, we want to go to the corn plant. Right. So that's right. The, the interseeding just, they're staying alive, but they're not actively growing. Right. So the amount of water that they're taking, the amount of nutrients is minuscule. Right. So on cover crops, we've had people. I've seeded some cover crops on acres that didn't get planted this year. We hear there's a scarcity of some cover crop seeds, and then we've got some growers who have been planting as many as a dozen species in a mix. It seems to me that these guys 
will not give up on seeding cover crops this fall, but they might go to a simpler mix maybe to save some dollars. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I I just got an email this morning from a grower that got his early corn done, and he was going over some of the mixes that he had put out, and most of them were right on target. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it varies. It depends on where you're at. But like here in this area, adding legumes, or in this case, he had uh, buckwheat uh, in his mix. I mean, buckwheat needs to be seeded. It's only got a 60-day life expectancy. Sure. It's done with the first frost. So he, he's not going to get much benefit out of it. He planted that after he harvested early corn. And the legumes, if they're not planted by the middle of September, you're probably not going to get much benefit out of them. Mm-hmm. So those are some examples, I guess, that you know, you you got the ideal mix, but you need to look at each individual species. I mean, you can you can cheat a little bit, but just you know, I mean, right right now it's it's they're calling for a big cool down, and and you know you you still need some heat to right. get, get these cover covers to grow. Right. I mean, heat heat and moisture, and uh, so you can. Be as optimistic as you want, but it's that you also need to face the the reality and and uh, be cognizant of what the odds are. Right? Are are you wasting money? Um, uh, just getting them out there. Right. So be be smart about it. So you you talked earlier about uh, hairy vetch and how you're not really getting much benefit out of it until the bud stage, which would could be in middle of May, but the idea, the concept that's come on the last couple of years is highly popular is planting green. Oh, absolutely. It, it was actually the planting green, it, as you look at two years ago, uh, I, mean, I got tired of all the YouTube videos. People were, they were pounding their chest, uh, planting green, and they were forced to. And psychologically, if you've never planted green, it's very intimidating. Normal psyche says, no, don't do that. And I remember some of the early years where we used it, where we tried to use the row cleaners, and they got wrapped up, and, you know, it was a disaster. Right. And we've learned that, you know, how to do it right, and it's a good strategy. And I I tell them, if they're about four years into using covers, I encourage them to take a field, 20 acres, 40 acres, whatever, and plant it green so that you've got some experience. Right. Because that makes a big difference than, holy moly, I got 4,000 acres, but I'm going to have to plant green, and I've never done it. Over the years, I've had at least three occasions when somebody called me, and they never, never no-tilled in their life. And they got excited, and they were going to do the whole farm. I mean, one guy was going to do 2,000 acres. Another guy was going to do 800 acres. Had never planted an acre in his life. Man, I, I was trying to talk him out of it. That's not the way to start. No, but, no, but, no. But I also know that at least two out of the three made it work. Yes, absolutely. And again, as an advisor to growers, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense to take steps and but I've had several growers that, you know, they went 100% no-till and didn't look back. Yeah. But they, they did their homework, and maybe that first year the weather cooperated with them. 
Uh, it's just when you don't have the experience and you get a, a curveball thrown at you. Right. And you don't know what to do. And I remember a couple of growers from Missouri that called me. They had it all figured out. They had the cereal rye, they were going to bale it, and then no-till soybeans into it. Well, except it was a wet spring. <laughs> They'd never done this before. Okay. <laughs> so, But it was a, a wet spring and couldn't get the hay cut. Okay, forget that. You know, we'll just get the beans planted. So right. one of them went ahead and planted green. The other, you know, is two, you know, so he had his five-foot cereal rye. He burned it down. And then it rained again. So he had that mat out there. Mm-hmm. He called me, it was like July 8th. It was still too wet to burn. I mean, it was just a, a nightmare because he had that mat right. on the top of that wet soil and it wouldn't dry out. I mean, it's, I mean that's what gives, gives a grower a bad taste. Yeah. And whereas the other guy went and planted green and, you know, it, it worked out quite well. Mm-hmm. So that's but if you don't have the experience, it's tough to go out there and <laughs> four foot, five foot tall cereal rye and plant beans and be pretty confident that it's uh, it's going to work out all right. So right. so again, I, I found you know first year you know maybe try it. It's just knee high, and but get that experience mm-hmm. uh, of doing it and. And just, you know, one, one of my old uh, sayings I, I use a lot is, you know, I, I challenge growers to do something different, but at the same time, I said, but if you can't sleep at night, then, <laughs> then maybe you, you, you gotta avoid doing this. Right. So 2019 hasn't been a good year. We had late planting. A lot of things didn't get planted. In general, did no-tillers f- do better than the general farm population? I don't know. You know, it's I've got some of the long-term no-till cover crops champions who still took prevented planted acres. Mm-hmm. I think it's almost going to be more luck than anything. We're just now start, starting to hear some of the folks planted was too wet. If they continue to get rain, or at least if they had moist soil, then they got root development. Yeah. If it turned dry, then we've got a poor root system out there. And there's a lot of concern right now, for for example, of corn that's going to go down because right. it doesn't have a root system. So I think it's – we know that there's a lot of corn, conventional, no-till, whatever, that was planted under less than ideal conditions. Right. And I think it just depends on, you know, if it was too wet – and it dried out, they're probably going to get hurt just because of lack of root development. If moisture was such that they still got root development, then they may come out okay. So I think it's going to be a mixed bag and and many, many factors that have to have to be kind of dissected, if you will. And, you know, was the yield just the late planting? I mean, we had guys here and this area that were, oh, I think the latest I know anybody that planted corn was June 22nd. And, uh, you know, if it's typical frost, he's, he's, he's not going to make it. If it's, right. if it's extended a little bit, then, you know, he may be okay. But again, 
what kind of root development, what kind of stock quality does he have, and uh, we'll just have to see how that how that works out. I, I I'm expecting there's going to be a mixed bag. Right. I talked this morning to a farmer in Michigan, and they got beans planted maybe the third week of May. They didn't get any corn planted until July 4th. And if we get an early frost, it's going to hurt a lot of people. Hey, we've talked for an hour. Anything you'd like to say that I missed? Well, I I just, the, the only thing I would say that I think that as we've looked at we're no-till and continuous no-till and no-till with cover crops and uh, as over my career, because I think you started no-till farmer when? 1972. 72, okay. Okay. We figured there was about 3 million acres of no-till that year. Now we're over 100 million. It's, uh, again, I like to feel that, uh, you know, did my little minuscule contribution to that effort, but I take my hat off to you, Frank, and, and what you've done with uh, uh, your no-till farmer conferences and publications and, and uh, been a big, big asset to the industry. Well, thank you. And I, I feel proud of what we've done. And it's, it's amazing to have gotten in when I was just getting started and stayed with it all these years. It's yes. a great progress. Yes, yes. It, it really is. It's, uh, I think it's, it's uh, hopefully it will continue to grow. Hey, thanks very much. You did a super job. I appreciate it. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader asked for some predictions about what would happen with no-till in the future and what other benefits there might be to it. Well, we've seen the no-till acreage really grow from 3.2 million acres in 1972 to over 100 million acres as we come into 2020. It's going to continue to grow. One of the reasons is we don't have any more farmland to farm in the United States. We lose farmland all the time, so we've got to find ways to increase yields. The farms are getting bigger and they need new ways to maintain the land using less time and equipment. And with precision farming and technology, no-till will continue to grow and it's going to have a major impact on us feeding the world in the future. Thanks to Frank Lester and Dan Towery for today's no-till insights and observations. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakegerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>